Tanya Willard. I'm from the Sokhwatmuk Nation and from the Scanlith Indian Band, according to the Indian, um, you know, city, the Government of Canada Indian Identification or Status Indian System. Um, but I think that I think of myself, I'm of mixed heritage. My mom is, um, I don't know, second or third generation Euro Canadian, and my dad is Sokhwatmuk from the Scanlith Indian Reserve. The Scotland Indian Band, but I think because that history of identity and cultural kinds of identifiers is so, um, it's it's so oppressive in the ways that it is delivered through the um, Indian status system, uh, that it also never imagined a future for us to be anything other than this particular government way of identifying us. So I identify with the land of Sokwamakuluh, um, and I live within that territory. And what does your artistic practice consist of? I work both as a, as a curator and as an artist, um, not often together, but I find that they both contribute to kind of my creative work. Um, and so I've had to be sometimes uh, broad, in thinking about what I do, because I do have a curatorial practice and I do have an artistic practice. Um, And in a kind of Western dominant system, the two are not exactly supposed to coexist. Or there there are bodies of writing that talk about the artist as curator. Um, But I find I don't, I haven't necessarily been a part of that kind of academic reading of it. For me, it's really about activating communities and being impassioned about being interested in things. So I I work as a curator and as an artist, and it feels like often the two are not necessarily meant to coexist in a kind of way that we configure galleries and spaces. And so one of the ways I think outside that is a space in my home territory that I call Bush Gallery, which is just, just some outdoor space and just kind of marking out a space where I can be more conceptual or experimental, not only with maybe media, but also drawing attention to where the resources and infrastructure for um, for art, contemporary art, to that kind of like to have it exist in the world um, in terms of gallery spaces and public institutions. Um, the work is also about identifying where that is not in Canada, uh, and then it's also about giving me some freedom to think through how I want to um, apply my creative practice. And what are some of the concepts that you work through with your actual art practice? I. I think like earlier on, I worked through a lot of kind of more activist impulses, perhaps. Uh, I was really, um, you know, organizing actively in communities, leftist communities against kind of broadly against capitalism and more specifically around indigenous rights. Um, and that formed some uh, kind of way of informing my artistic practice for some time. Lately, I think since I moved back home into the land that I identify with is Sukhamahulu, my practice has been about locating myself in that in that land. Uh, and not just in a way that identifies with only the resources that come from the land or anything like that, but about my own disruption of natural places or how I fit into that. Um, 
and ways in which I want to relate as much as like um, uh, you're just raising my family in a way that's connected to that landscape as well. So those are the, some of the things I, I work through uh, in my artistic practice, which maybe in curating, maybe I have more of a sense of what I want to sort of this, the artists or the conversations I want to bring into a project. And it's maybe a bit more defined and artistically, maybe I'm experimenting a little bit more. home coming back home as an as an artist who's lived in a lot of more urban spaces can you talk about that shift back yeah I mean I grew up in small town um and was always back and forth to my reserve um but I did spend 10 years sort of working in Vancouver uh and moving out of Vancouver was yeah it was a big deal I didn't know whether as an artist or as a curator as a being interested in the creative um, sector if there was any possibility for me moving home because I live on a small reserve. It's about uh, under 300 people, I think. Uh, 300 or so of our members live off reserve. And it's also uh, most adjacent to a very small town that has no real capacity or um, perhaps interest in arts and culture. <laughs> I mean, they do, but it's uh, it's not valued in the same way as the town um, in general, the interior communities in BC are, are built on resource extraction. And even though they've experienced, the towns have experienced a depression in that sector for years, I think the kinds of concepts of valuing and creating economies or, or just spaces um, that privilege kind of critical thinking in a small town is a stretch. So um, I did have the chance to work out of the Kamloops Art Gallery, which is our main kind of public gallery in the area. Uh, curatorially for a period of time but uh, it was a challenge and I think you know as much as it's this magic that I get to talk to you in in your home there and I'm actually well in Kelowna right now it's um it's been the communications that have allowed me to continue my work uh, even if it was curating exhibitions from the top of a hill where I can get cell reception (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I was back and forth to uh, where I was building my house was more rural and it wasn't as connected um, but that allowed me, uh, as well as some great opportunities, to continue working. And so now I've been moved back about five years now. So that's half the time I spent in Vancouver. So uh, for me, I am just really settled in home now. I I guess it was a period of time where I was living urban and relate to that. But I've sort of always been um, small town in some ways as well. And so it's not a huge adjustment for me. But for my partner, it's a bit of an adjustment. <laughs> yeah, it seems like um, in this day and age, as long as you have some source of internet connection, you mm-hmm. you can continue on your trajectory in a in a really yeah. powerful way. 
I think so. You know, I thought about, I recently co-curated an exhibition on Lawrence Paul Yahweh Lupton's work. He's a, a painter, Okanagan, um, uh, and Coast Salish artist. And he has some, uh, some of his works reference the the, the smallness or the um, limits limits of being on the reserve, and it kind of was a moment where I like where I thought back to okay, what does it mean to have located myself back onto the reserve when some people view it as an oppressive kind of system and and see no reason to stay on the reserve. Not that I'm saying uh, Lawrence says that specifically. He's also talking about a long history of unresolved land rights issues, specifically in British Columbia, where we have very few treaties. And basically, BC um, tricked Canada into signing on to Confederation in a way that left them off the hook from dealing with Indigenous lands. Um, and so we have a very kind of awkward situation in some ways around that. But for me, being closer to or living within the landscape of Sukhwamak Uluk allows me to reconnect with our Sukhwamak Shin language and with the kind of aesthetics and practices which are not set in stone, which are developing, which I switch up all the time, um, but to connect with that in a way that's meaningful to me. And also I think of this in a broader picture of being well, if we keep moving to the cities and we keep uh, making spaces at galleries and public institutions, which we should, um, where is the space, though, for us to uh, us to imagine what an indigenous-led, not exclusive, but led gallery space could be, and would it be, you know, and what does it look like if it's located on the reserve? Of which, I, I mean, I, I am immersed in this world, but I don't know that I could name necessarily more than two potentially contemporary art spaces on an Indian reserve in Canada. And I don't know the situation uh, down in the states. I think there's a bit there's a bit more stuff happening. But in, actually, it's worthwhile for me to kind of think about looking um, across that imaginary line to see what ways people have imagined um, that. But you know, I'm often interested in researching and in an inquiry into the the market, um, anthropology, um, goodwill, the things that have kind of shaped native art to be this kind of um, expectation of the public and I'm always interested in kind of breaking that down and, and trying to see where it where it comes from and how do how do you feel being an indigenous female curator can you talk about some of your experiences with that role I think I um, I identify with the work that I do and I identify with broader indigenous cosmologies or knowledge bases or ways of being and especially with contemporary sort of critical reflection on colonial spaces you know i've gone through this journey in terms of identity where because i was invisible as a native person because being a native person was something that was not preferable um, in high school to the political moment to assert my cultural identity to say you know I'm, this is, I'm not only proud of this, but it informs the work I do and it should be acknowledged. And then the space of, well, what happens when you position yourself that way and then people want to tokenize or consume or uh, place your body of work in a way that doesn't allow you to have the freedom to kind of test your own creative limits or other people's prescriptive ideas of what you're doing. So I think you have gone through those kinds of um, thinking about how to position my identity 
certainly when I think about how my work relates to back home, I still think it's important to um, to hold up our Sokotma culture and to identify that way. Um, and then there's some spaces I just identify with my English name. And, you know, because I know that culturally identifying myself or geographically identifying myself in some way um, creates uh, imaginings and expectations by people like oh, you're in a rural town or you're on the Indian Reserve. That's a, that's a curious kind of situation. And, um, yeah, you know, there's always something about being treated as a curiosity that's uncomfortable. And how do you, how do you generally deal with that? What's your, what's your kind of impulse in those situations? Do you, do you take offense? Do you, um, do you lash out or do you just kind of um, take it I'm and patient. keep going? <laughs> I'm patient. I'm a patient person. <laughs> Maybe all moms are. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, you know, I am concerned enough to and and or experienced enough to know with the own with my own limits to my own education about um, in a public school space or even just within my own family in terms of where people felt like it was okay to share culture and what wasn't shared and what I had to kind of find myself that uh, it's not necessarily um, easy to come by and there's a deep history to that denial and so I'm I am generous I hope in thinking that through and offering people a chance to transform the way they're thinking uh, and sometimes that means it seems kind of funny to me sometimes it's exhausting um, I'm not usually personally offended I just I'm just sort of able to I mean I grew up in a small redneck town so <laughs> you know I, I I kind of know that exists I have no illusions uh, about it not existing and so I'm I try to be patient and generous but if it's on a level you know that's personally um, if it's on a level where I felt somebody was being uh, attacked or profiled or you know then then those are grounds for uh, for a reaction and moving back into um a little bit more about your personal life can you talk about um navigating travel and family i know as an artist you travel a lot and you also have a family can can you talk about some of um some of the ways that you balance all of those I don't know if I do, for one. I don't know if anybody does. If so, sign me up for some kind of online seminar. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it's like you're just always working through it. Um, I think it's become important to me to acknowledge it, though, and speak to it. And and I just was baffled when I first had children that all of a sudden the realization of how much the world is not made for anyone to actually, like, care for their children <laughs> It's like a very, it's like a dangerous and like not set up world for, you know, what what bathrooms ever have a little stool so your four-year-old can wash their hands? Like none, you always got to pick them up. And it's like, there's other ways that we address design in urban spaces or whatever, or ways we're working. But that one is just so like basic to our humanity and it's still completely um, unrealized or unimagined. And, you know, is that because it's, domain of women is that because you know in the kind of western thought children are marginalized and not brought into the center of our lives is that capitalism that you know makes sure that there's a public school system that supports children's education and trains them to be in our society and so we can work you know there's many kinds of ways that that's constructed and so I think 
I'm always interested in speaking to and acknowledging that um, my position as a mother and that that constant navigation and negotiation and caring for other you know other small humans that need kind of more care and that it's a different dimension than when we're adults. I feel the same way. It doesn't seem like our world is really set up to <laughs> um, cater towards humans that have children, although mm-hmm. so many of us although do. That's, that's kind of the point of humanity <laughs> continuing. I don't know if somebody's missing this, but <laughs> we'll set it straight right now and let them know. <laughs> Get some moms into the urban designing and, uh, and to the spaces where we can operate better. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, you're at a residency right now. Can you break down what you're doing there and what type of work you're doing and what mediums are you using and what concepts are you um, working through? I think I'm trying to base my work through this idea of a, of a container, of a basket, and all that the basket can hold. Um, so I, I sometimes work in birch bark basketry and with other kinds of traditional materials. Um, I also work with uh, materials that are used for measuring and marking land, so survey tape, um, uh, landmarking paints, uh, and I also am currently working with some uh, silent film, uh, although it's copied onto DVD. So I work through, I think what I finally figured out, or I'm figuring out, is that generally I'm sort of uh, intuitive in the way that I work, uh, whether as an artist or a curator, but um, the intuition comes from thinking about a particular concept or a particular thing that already exists, and then sort of having these calls to use certain materials or to uh, mimic uh, certain kinds of things, like uh, in media or something, mimicking a kind of a design language that is um, a kind of a mockery or a mimic of, of something else. And, you know, I've done projects where that was about looking at the ways that um, the land in Turtle Island or in the Americas or whatever was kind of first pictured in wood engraving. And so I learned some techniques of wood engraving and did some work that way. And so um, materially, I may be all over the place, but it's generally I'm trying to um, intuitively approach the materials as related to um this, this, the subject or the concept that I'm working with. So uh, I, I was recently working with birch bark baskets and copper foil and laser engraving and and film and crystals. And what's the what's the residency project that you're in right now? The residency is um, it's a. Uh, uh, funding actually, I believe, similarly to the call response project, in part, but it's a collective called O Canada's. Kina does. I'm not saying it wrong. It's a it's a Taltown word um, that obviously is making a bit of a mimic to O Canada, but it's a Taltown word. It's a collective of um, professors and practitioners. Uh, Peter Morin, who's Taltown, Ashok Mather, uh, uh, professor, and uh, here at the UBC Okanagan, and Ayumi Goto, who's a performance artist and um, thinker critic. So they've invited a number of artists um, and writers and curators uh, over the course of this month and a half long residency. So, and I uh, am here only a little bit in terms of negotiating and navigating that motherhood and childcare part. Um, but it's uh, great to have a space to work through some of the ideas for the call response project is primarily what I'm focusing on.
describe what your role is in call response? Well, I think uh, there's been a lot of allowance for us, Maria, and myself particularly, to approach this project in the complicated ways that we work through being a curator and an artist. I think I've, I've been able to uh, uh, be a bit more of an artist in this project, which is great. Um, Sarah Hogue has really, really done a lot of work to pull this project and some writing uh, on it and organizing and coordinating of it together. Uh, but early on in the planning stages, we each sort of suggested an artist that we would work with, uh, as well as be involved ourselves as artists. And yeah, it's been interesting to kind of position that and think through it. And I have approached it, I think, more as an artist. But, uh, but I... I think that that is sort of necessary for me to get through the artistic work. Yeah, and it's interesting where they where those two things can kind of live together and where where they become difficult um, to do both at the same time. Uh, but I am really invested in the other artists and the other projects for a call response. So I had uh, originally wanted to work with Ursula Johnson, uh, and Maria had brought forth uh, Luck Luck Williamson uh, Bathright, and uh, Tara had. Uh, brought myself and Maria, Maria in on that conversation as well, uh, and so uh, and so Maria had also suggested we work with um, with Christy, uh, and so yeah, so it's been this uh, exchange and this well, this really kind of not common, and I feel honoring or privileged kind of space to work with a number of other Indigenous women and thinking about practices and thinking around some of these uh, issues that are present in the Call Response Project. And what um, what is your project for Call Response and what is your desired outcome from the experience as a participating artist stepping away from that curator role? I'm working with a particular um, set of historical materials uh, that have to do with Harlan Smith, who was a practicing anthropologist um, during uh, the Jessup Expedition, the North Pacific Jessup Expedition in the late 1890s. And then he later, um, he later, he worked in the museum in Ottawa for a number of years, and he later um, designed an education series for children at the museum. And in that education series, he made a series of uh, nine or ten silent films uh, through BC and Alberta. Uh, that profiled different uh, indigenous nations. And so there's one on my nation, um, which uh, probably in my lifetime um, changed from being generally the anglicized version of the Shushwap to Sukhwama. Uh, but this one is called the Shushwap Indians of British Columbia. And he also produced uh, this, this album of prehistoric Canadian art in the earlier 20s. I have it right here. I can check the date. Um, in 1923, and so earlier when I spoke of the kind of uh, the kind of pressures and shaping of native art that has happened in Canada, and maybe maybe we can speak to that on a kind of America's level as well. The kind of pressures of anthropology and markets and charitable organizations. We used to have a charitable organization in BC that was about pro profiling and or positioning indigenous crafts, native crafts, Indian crafts as a way that could be marketable and people could make economies and then con you know contribute and have less social problems because they would have economies, this kind of thinking. And so his lifetime of work uh, is something that I'm I keep on being sort of interested in, but primarily I'm working with this silent film he created in 1928, which is the Shishwap Indians of British Columbia. And so 
in the Jessup expedition, he also made a series of plaster life casts, and that was a common practice ethnographically uh, in anthropology, uh, discredited largely, I think, in the late teens, 20s of, of the 1900s. But um, it was a practice that was used then. And thinking through that materially, I thought about what is the raw material from plaster? You know, this kind of ubiquitous material that's in our drywall that's, you know, and I and I was looking at the um, selenite, which is a, a crystal structure, gypsum crystal, um, a really beautiful and transparent stone. I have one here. but um, And I thought about I also had read about what I was researching this material. Um, there's a church in Rome built in the fifth century whose windows are made of selenite because it is a transparent material and before glass was largely available, sometimes it was used for windows. It comes off and kind of, uh, you can mill it or whatever in these kinds of sheets of transparency. And so in being, in thinking about the way that the film was designed for children but not our children, not our community. It was taken off to the other side of Canada for a primarily non-native public school students who packed the theaters to watch these films and to sort of consume this image, uh, perhaps more ethnographically correct than Hollywood, but with its own very particular kinds of constructions. And they would consume these films of also, there's a lot of shots of like our children and our babies, and this time frame, the late 1920s, 1927, is is simultaneously the time frame when residential school has had a very serious impact already and has become mandatory, and we're being stripped of the access, the rights, uh, the the pride, the beauty of our culture or our our children at that time are being stripped of that while it's being consumed in this other kind of ethnographic documentary format on the other side of Canada. And, you know, how many people were even shown that film in Kamloops or any of the Sukhumak communities nearby where it was filmed? And so this very interesting um, dynamic and contrast and binary that's created by with that film is something I'm looking at. And so because of that interest in the raw materiality, I simply project the film through a stack of the crystals and it the crystals because um they sort of displace the light maybe like maybe like hanging a crystal in your window to catch the sun's rays to throw rainbows around a room it's slightly it has a slight bit of that effect so it makes a bit more of a constellation of parts of the film and also disrupts perhaps the straight viewing and consuming of that film which I just find problematic even when I look at it, I wanna see like, oh, that's 1928. Like what are people doing then? Or, you know, like what, and I end up wanting to sort of consume it in this kind of ethnographic way as well. And so I'm trying to disrupt that and trying to think about it in different ways um, and doing that sort of visually with these crystals. Now in kind of new age kind of crystal healing, which I don't really practice or I'm not really a part of, but selenite is sort of uh, sold or positioned or um, instructed to be a crystal that you can clear other crystals with and that has a kind of way of promoting uh, deeper insight or healing and fertility. But And so all these <laughs> things, <laughs> and so all these things I'm sort of thinking about in that um, material choice.
for the project, for the um, hashtag call response project, and what is their role in your work? Uh, we're still finding our way through that a little bit. Um, these respondent roles, I think, have been really interesting in the way that we're thinking through, okay, what does that really mean? Or I've asked a Haida scholar, Marcia Crosby, um, who's a prolific writer, um, PhD, uh, and she in meeting with her at different times, sometimes just casually running into her, I knew she had a particular interest in sort of um, some historical and archival materials to do with the passion plays, which were like uh, uh, plays, theatrical kinds of plays that were produced in the early 1900s, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s with um, indigenous populations as part of the kinds of ways that the, the ways that the church was operating um, on reserves or within indigenous communities and the promotion of uh, Catholic narratives. Um, and so these plays were created and they're quite dramatic images. And, and she, she has done some research around those, also around sort of um, uh, hymns sung in uh, indigenous languages that uh, our church kind of hymns, Catholic kind of hymns. Uh, and she thinks through that as also being these um, moments when um, Indigenous peoples were not actually allowed to get together, but then you had some really like hundreds of people coming to these um, passion plays. And so there's these subtle kinds of ways that people are meeting. And because our land rights struggle goes back hundreds of years, they're of course talking about land. Uh, and and ways of, of organizing around that. And so she's done some really amazing work also looking at uh, Native artists who are kind of uh, developing bodies of work and kind of mo modernist um, spaces. And so uh, she's really interesting uh, writer who I've asked to think about um, and to look at some of the archival materials I'm looking at. And I know she is able to sort of cut through them and and look at these ways that they're operating that maybe aren't uh, evident if you don't sort of think about another kind of context of what's happening at that time. And what do you think her um, her role in your project will be, or how will she access um, being a participant further than just viewing the films? I mean, that part, I hope her, like, she is a writer primarily, so um, I'm expecting she may want to respond that way. But we're in conversation uh, currently uh, about about how she might position herself as a respondent. You know, even having a conversation uh, with her that is able to, to touch on some of these um, areas of research that she has is really, I think, illuminating for the project. And the project is kind of about also about this kind of reproduction of, so the original film, the silent film, this uh, historical piece, it doesn't actually exist anymore. It was lost in this um, offsite storage fire in 1967 and, and a bunch of other NFB, National Film Board stuff was lost. And so there's this, uh, this kind of ever-present kind of reproduction and loss of original and uh, particularly original light um, that I'm sort of thinking through. So maybe that's sort of thinking about lens-based work. And I know that she's looked specifically at these photographs of the passion plays and thought through those. So, hmm. um, yeah, I'm not sure what form, like in the resulting gallery space, her response takes yet, um, but she is a uh, known and respected writer and academic uh, and I'm hoping to engage her with some of this material and, and be able to uh, have the privilege and honor to kind of uh, know how she would approach this material and some 
thoughts that she can give about it. Hmm. So how would you personally interpret the hashtag call response project? Like, what do you think it means in the context of today as a contemporary Indigenous person? I think what we've thought about and why we positioned the title the way we did was we were sort of hungry for this conversation, for this response, for this space where it's not just about the works that we create, but we can position those to have some kinds of deeper effect. I mean, I'm sort of always interested in in hoping to create transformative moments uh, with my work, both as a curator or as an artist. And that fails a bunch of the time, but I think... Or, or it happens on a way that's not measurable and not valued. Uh, and I think we just, we really wanted to think through what the infrastructure and the funding and the ways in which we're talking about reconciliation in, in Canada, um, to think carefully through that and to offer a space of critical reflection of that and that idea of if we're making a call that we have some accountability for people to step up as as allies or as witnesses or in some way that they can be accountable to to look to see to um, start to be part of that transformative impulse and how would you interpret the term reconciliation and has your interpretation of that term shifted throughout the time you've been working on this project? Sure. I mean, to be clear, it's a funding term and it's a Canadian government term. I don't think, like, we're not necessarily talking in our communities for years about reconciliation. We're, we're talking about current injustices that need to be addressed. We're talking about current, like, land uh, extractions and resource extractions, especially in BC, where we're, we have very few treaties, very few agreements that legitimize anything about the province or, the, or Canada as a country. So I think that is a specific kind of language, but it's also, you know, I'm always, I'm always maybe, uh, that seems clear, but there's always these subtle ways that things work through. It's also that generous space where if people have not had those experiences, have not been exposed to those narratives, don't know that history, it's also the space to ensure that people are informed about that. And so, you know, on a broader kind of public scale, it has it has made a difference to enter that language into the kind of the dominant lexicon of, of news and, um, you know, journalist reports and things like that. It has made a difference for people to uh, all of a sudden go like, oh, you know, we didn't realize this history or we're only learning about it now. And... Um, so I want to make space for that as well, um, but it's important to identify how it's functioning. It is a, it is a term that allows us to, to have these conversations and everything uh, in a particular kind of way. Um, but I think we were really interested in in taking that further, um, and in seeing what we could make reconciliation mean. You know, there's always a kind of uh, cultural meaning that a word can go through. And so I hope that we're making reconcili- reconciliation be about about transformative spaces and about restitution and about um, you know repatriation and about all those other things that are important and that are now and they're not 
their his their history now. Hmm. Is there any other reflections that you would like to give about the project before we kind of tie up that segment? Is there anything that you'd like to say? I mean, let me think. Uh, I've been sort of delving in a bit deeply into this film, and, and I guess in some ways this film is resonant for me in the conversation of reconciliation as well, because I'm I'm trying to change the way that I look at it and that other people look at it and to disrupt it slightly. And at the same time, that's this kind of creative gesture, which is, which is resonant with me, but I also am aware that there's a whole world that doesn't really maybe uh, respond as immediately to contemporary art and to uh, these kinds of ways of thinking through practices that I'm doing. And so I guess in some ways I always want there to be a level of advocacy that I can be doing as well. And so the project does look at engaging so-called extreme language. It's something I'm committed to in my life and my learning and, of course, is one of the most devastating casualties of uh, of residential school is the loss of our language, that I only grew up with a small amount of our language, and it took me until my adult years and my children relearning our, our language that I actually learned from them. So in many ways, I'm seeing this return to thinking about um, children and the, and the way that these films were screened, and at that very same time, the pressures against our Sofamach language are mounting so um, so severely that that language is being, you know, I guess maybe we shouldn't say lost. It's not lost. We didn't lose it. It's being killed, you know? Mm. It's being hunted down and it's being killed, our language. And so in the face of that difficult uh, uh, crime, you know, I want to be careful about abstract gestures as well. You know, so I'm, I'm so... I'm passionate about the space and the transformative potential of art, but I am also grounded in that it takes, um, you know, feet on the ground, uh, people engaged in fighting for Indigenous land rights, and that I'm not doing that. I'm uh, I do that when I can, when it's when it's possible. But there's lots of people who sacrifice and do that, and so um, particularly I'm thinking about uh, Kanahus Manuel and Mayuk, uh, who are um, Indigenous women from my community, Sokotmuk women but also elders in our community who just kept uh, kept living and, and kept speaking their language despite the pressures that were mounting. And Kanahus's role in um, advocating against mining and the kind of mining disasters that happened in our territory at the Mount Polly uh, mine tailing spill. Uh, and so, and just knowing that these things are connected and that, that art is not always enough but it's what I can offer. And so I'm, I try to be responsible about what I can offer and that it's not, it's not activism. I want it to be, um, I'm thinking that way and my gesture is meant to be transformative, but at the same time, it's something else. So I, I just, I'm trying to think through that because when things become abstract, they become easier for us in terms of being not something we have to sacrifice in our lives, in our day-to-day lives. So you can entertain the fact that reconciliation is something we should be practicing as Canadians if you are now educated about residential school. But 
the conversation doesn't go to, okay, well, should we think about um, why you own this house in this city? And is there any legitimacy really to this city based on the kinds of cultural genocide and practices and land expropriations that are real and that are just disguised and and because it's our everyday existence, they're legitimized. Um, but many of those things are are not legitimate. Yeah, it's some heavy stuff. And I think I think art does have a really good way of um, producing like a form of passive activism or something like I mm -hmm. That's a strange pairing of words, but <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, and but I agree, it does have a power—a power that can't be measured in the same way that a, a protest downtown. And sometimes, you know, let's face it—we've all been to uh, marches and protests, which are doing nothing as well, you know, in terms of, and yet they're doing things for people on an individual level. So I just, I just like try to think through these scales and the way things are operating, and you know, I'm always trying to calculate a way that something can have. A, a larger output or a larger offering or how can or you know bringing more people in or the impact that you can create mm. and uh yeah and working with the crystals allows me to do some kinds of you know have fun as well because uh i also am very sensitive to the fact that indigenous artists and racialized or marginalized artists are called on a lot of the time to think through all these very heavy things and uh and sometimes we just want to make work that is fulfilling and joy producing for us and i am all totally behind that as well <laughs> transformative moment for you with your work in your life like a moment that stands out hmm I I think there are a few transformative moments and I think maybe well I think maybe they started to happen in high school there was moments in high school where we were never taught about the local indigenous space, which was my own territory, but always it was again, in similar ways to the film, it was always the other. Um, it was always a projection of um, cultural identity and not about placing yourself within that. Uh, and so, and all these measures of if you're, you know, how how native are you or if you're if you're here in the classroom and you don't look a certain way then we don't have to address your cultural identity with you um so but there were moments when uh we had some elders brought into our we all of a sudden had a first nations uh club at lunchtime and uh and it was like a moment where we're like oh yeah okay you're native you're native <laughs> identified each other but also brought some elders in the um classroom and they were uh really generous and that's that generosity is can be so transformative and that's those subtle things that you know it probably was a very small moment when uh i can think of a particular elder um in splatchine which is one of our Sokotma communities rosalind williams who in about grade 10 or 11 offered us 
language for um, the creator. And she said, you know, you're not going to learn everything in this one lunch hour, these two lunch hours, but here's one thing you should remember. And it's Tegald Kukbi, and that's our word for a creator. And I, rem- you know, that lesson stuck with me. And, uh, you know, I went on to work in Aboriginal theatre and sort of have always um, worked in these ways uh, that are creative and messaging spaces. I uh, worked with Redwire, which was a national Aboriginal youth publication and kind of a, a, a space of making cultural kinds of disruption and creative practice. And so those spaces have always been valuable and transformative for me. Um, and those are the moments when there was a rupture in the dominant way that things were presented or what I, the dominant ways in, in that I was being taught about Canada or about the town I was in or about my own culture. And, you know, previous to learning to go to Kukupi, I, had, I knew just a few words in our language, you know, one of one of which, uh, or some of which are, you know, naughty words or have to do with um, <laughs> being scolded <laughs> uh, yeah. or to do with our, or to do with social problems in the lateral violence and substance use. And so I knew those words first before I, before I knew the words of our, cre- the, you know, the language for acknowledging our creator. And that's the deep and difficult impact of residential school that's intergenerational that it seems like nothing to somebody who maybe who doesn't uh, isn't empathizing or resonant with that story. But for me, it was transformative. And do you remember the first piece of work that you created that you were like super proud of or were like, yes, I am an artist. This is my calling. <laughs> I think when I did start to exercise some kind of spaces of thinking about what Native art was or could be, perhaps, is when I felt like I was, I felt like I wanted to be in the space of art. But also, I also have a memory of being like 12 and being really proud that I could like draw a unicorn. (laughs) And so maybe a bit of both. A sweet unicorn, and <laughs> and reimagining and uh, and claiming the lands that our indigenous heritage are based on. <laughs> it's all about that balance. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, I definitely was drawn to being able to, yeah, to look in some way, right? To observe and then um, and then reflect in terms of a drawing, or observe and then reflect in terms of painting but I think it was the moment that I was able to bring my cultural identity even though I was very young and very young and understanding uh, I guess it was about bringing those two things together because previously my world had seemed to always separate those things I was raised in a non-native home although I was always back and forth to the reserve because my parents had split up and so my world seemed to be slightly dislocated where the Things were different when I went to visit my dad on the reserve, and then I wasn't. Then we never gave that any space to think about in terms of the dominant systems around me. For sure, my mom uh, was always resonant with those histories, worked with our elders, and always made sure that we had some connection there. Um, so I never felt displaced, but slightly dislocated. And I think the transformative potential came for me in both my artistic practice and maybe my personal life when I could locate myself with in that and not it not be these separate spaces that's still what i'm working with today really that's bush gallery this concept is still about um refusing to be uh dislocated you know 
um, traveling to to be part of contemporary art. At sometimes I have a refusal that like I don't need to go to um, Berlin or LA or you know those places are great and it's not about taking away from that space. I love going to see shows. I love that sphere, but. I think that it's possible for it to also reflect my reality and be a, a way that I can work through our land, a way that I can acknowledge and value local artists, traditions, aesthetics, thinking. You know, our people are also conceptual artists. Our people are also all of these things. And um, that space is meant to be Indigenous-led, but not exclusive. So there's also this generosity in this way of thinking through and opening up uh, and learning from other kinds of stories. would you um, give to yourself the artist perhaps 10 years ago hmm ooh good question just thinking about it because like there's some kind of off the cuff advice but you know I don't want to just say the standard like you you know keep keep going keep doing it your dreams are going to come true being an artist seems like a difficult Thing in the world it's not easy and sometimes you have some successes and sometimes you have a lot of failures and of course you learn from those mistakes but you know it's for some people it comes sooner they have uh, a more a, a built-in appreciation for their work sooner or their work becomes more resonant or they're able to release it or announce it to the world on a scale that's um, that's larger but I think in the end, though, um, the quality of the work has to do with how you are invested in it. Uh, and I think that comes with all that struggle and negotiation and navigating. And it's not pleasant all the time. It's like damn hard to be an artist. And that's also there's like the real reality that sometimes that's why I'm a curator is because I can get paid to be a <laughs> You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too sure coding. Like, um, we, I have stayed in the creative field, but I've had to do other kinds of work to make, um, applying myself as an artist realistic. So I do some graphic design work. I do curating work. Sometimes that leaves me to split apart and I need to kind of put it back together. But I think one like advice for myself 10 years ago is you don't necessarily have to do it all in the ways that you see around you, but there's no real template for your success or for your ability to make a living from your art. There's no real template, and it, but you have to be sort of true to yourself. I think that's the biggest. The minute I try to extend myself in a way that I don't feel comfortable or as invested in is a moment where I generally fail. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dan, you know. that's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, is there any advice that has influenced you throughout your past? Something that um, somebody said that keeps coming back to you over and over as a as a guide. 
Well, I have to say that generally um, more senior than me, um, contemporary indigenous artists have been a model for me in, in, in being able to just have a small conversation or observe something about their life and their practice that um, Richard, Richard Van Camp, he's an author, Dene uh, author, and has written a number of books here. And uh, he said something to me when I was young, and I can't even remember the context of it, but he talked about giving permission, that sometimes when you see somebody else, you don't even necessarily have to talk to them, but they're either presenting about their work or something, and they do something that all of a sudden gives you permission to follow that same path or to have that same thought. And, and or to value that thought, that those people, those front runners of our artistic and you know writing and philosophical and spiritual kinds of um, spaces, um, those elders of art uh, are the people I look to. They don't necessarily have to give me advice, but just their presence and knowing that they've had to navigate and find their way um, to realize success in their work, whether whether I mean that in a financial sense or in in really coming to a kind of place with their work where they're confident, um, then that's what's what becomes a model for me. <laughs> so this is your soapbox moment. If you could say one thing to the world using this podcast as your platform, what would it be? Well, I just think we should all look inside that in some way to find what's true to us and to stand up for injustice that we see around us and to stand together and change the world. Why haven't you learned anything? When I school shit is a joke. The same people who control the school system control the prison system and the whole social system ever since slavery. Some redneck crackers Right around the time Third base Dropped the Cactus album But I was reading Malcolm I changed my name in 89 Cleaning parts of my brain Like a baby nine I took their history class serious Front row Every day of the week Third period Fucking with the teacher's head Calling them racist I try to show them crackers Some light They couldn't face it I got my diploma From a school called Rickers Full of teenage mothers And drug dealing niggas In the hallways The popo was always present Searching through niggas' possessions Looking for dope and weapons Get your lessons That's what my mom's kept stressing I try to pay attention But they classes weren't interesting They seem to only glorify the Europeans Claiming Africans with only three-fifths of human beings They schools can't teach us shit My people need freedom We trying to get all we can get All my high school teachers could suck my dick Telling me white man lies Straight bullshit Step brainwash camp, they make you think if you drop out, you ain't got a chance to advance in life. They try to make you pull your pants up. Students fight.
like the teachers ain't get took away in handcuffs And if that wasn't enough, then they expel you All your people's understanding, but to them, you a failure Observation and participation, my favorite teachers When they beat us in the hand with them books, it don't reach us Whether you break dance or rock sway to lead us Or be in the bathroom with your click Smoke a reefer, then you know they mad class Ain't important unless you add enough cash and multiples Unemployment ain't rewarding, they may as well teach us extortion You either get paid or locked up, the principal is like a warden in the four-year sentence Mad niggas never finish, but that doesn't mean I couldn't be a doctor or a dentist State schools can't teach us shit, my people need freedom We trying to get all we can get, all my high school teachers can suck my dick Telling me white man lies, straight bullshit State schools can't teach us shit, my people need freedom We trying to get all we can get, all my high school teachers can suck my dick Telling me white man lies, straight bullshit, bullshit, Could suck my dick. Yeah!